Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I'm your host this week, Richie Plush. And I'm excited because I had a chance to learn something new, and this is something I'm always interested in doing. Families and clinicians know that very often an autism diagnosis comes with co-occurring or comorbid diagnoses. Often these diagnoses include epilepsy or anxiety or gastrointestinal issues or even just sleep challenges. I had an opportunity this week to learn more about a a diagnosis called TSC. I sat down with Kari Rosbeck, the president and CEO of TSC Alliance, and Dr. Stephen Roberts, the chief scientific officer from TSC Alliance, just to learn more about TSC and how this diagnosis can parallel autism or uh, be a co-occurring diagnosis. Just something of note that stood out from our conversation, 50% of those who end up, 50% of the individuals who end up with a TSC diagnosis end up with an autism diagnosis as well. I thought this conversation was very informative and I hope you do too. Kari Rusbeck and Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Thanks Thanks. for having us, Richie. Great to be here. I got to say that uh, TSC, tuberous sclerosis complex, is a new, uh, it's maybe new information for some of our audience. Um, Steve, can you expand a little bit and tell us what TSC really is to get us started? Sure, I'm happy to. So TSC is a rare genetic disorder. Uh, It leads to the formation of tumors in various organs throughout the body, uh, especially the brain, the heart, the lungs, the kidney, the skin. Um, These tumors tend to be not malignant, like we think of as aggressive cancers, but they're slow growing and progressive, meaning they typically don't stop. They just keep growing. Um, However, in the brain, the Um, There's also a disorganization of the way the cells are organized, and this leads to the formation of hardened nodules called tubers, and that's where the disease gets its name, tuberous sclerosis complex. And these areas of the brain um, that are disorganized lead to epilepsy. So epilepsy is very common in tuberous sclerosis complex or TSC. About 85% of people with TSC will have epilepsy at some point during their lifetime. And most of the time, like about two thirds of cases, it starts in the first year of life. And so um, people living with TSC, if they have, uh, if they have uh, epilepsy in that first year of life, it's important to get it under control. Otherwise, there's an increased risk of cognitive delay um, or other uh, neuro, neuropsychological problems and developmental delay. And then, of course, what brings us to this podcast today is autism, which can occur in about 50% of people with TSC um, who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Again, probably due to a disorganization of circuits in the brain. Thank you so much for that. It's it's it, there's, it sounds like there are a lot of parallels um, and I wanna dive into that more, but can you tell us a little bit about how the how the diagnosis process looks? How do, how do people know if they have TSC and, and what are some of the warning signs or things like that? 
Sure, that's a great question. So let me let me go back uh, a few decades. And um, the first, yeah, so the the first um, most common way of diagnosing TSC was epilepsy. So um, kids or adults would have severe intractable epilepsy, and it would be associated typically with um, with changes in the in the face, right, with um, um, angiofibromas, as we call them now, uh, on the face, these tumors that grow there, but also with intellectual disability. So um, the seizures would be so bad early in life, they would have intellectual disability. And then as they got a little older, they would grow these angiofibromas on the face. Now we know a lot more about TSC. So first of all, we know the genetics. Um, secondly, we know that, as I mentioned, tumors grow and several organs throughout the body. And it turns out that the tumors that grow in the heart um, start very early. So they can start even before the baby is born. And so now sometimes uh, we're able to identify babies with TSC even before they're born because they may have one or more tumors growing in their heart that are actually large enough to pick up on prenatal ultrasound. This is, if someone's going to have TSC, this is actually a good thing because the earlier one is diagnosed, then we can start to get ahead of the problems, right? right? So if you think back to the old days, you already had, you already had intellectual disability, you already had epilepsy and you already had tumors on your face before you knew you had TSC. Now, um, while it is sometimes not caught because not everyone has these cardiac tumors, um, sometimes the presentation of, um, epilepsy is first. And so someone comes in with epilepsy, maybe infantile spasms, a specific kind of seizures. Um, and that can lead uh, to suspicion of TSC, but so you've got multiple ways. You've got epilepsy might be first. You've got these cardiac tumors might be seen first, um, I mentioned that TSC is genetic, um, but um, two thirds of the cases are actually new genetic cases. Um, There are other diseases like that. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is one where um, often it's not present in the family. It's a new gene mutation that's occurred in this person. And now this person has TSC and it wasn't previously in the family. However, a third of cases are inherited from a parent who had TSC. And so that's another way. And the reason I, I say that is that's another way of identifying and getting a diagnosis of TSC is if someone, a parent with TSC is having a child, there's a 50% ch- chance that that child will have TSC. And so, um, uh, physicians can look right away. If they haven't seen the heart tumors, they can look right away after birth and they can look for other signs of TSC and make a diagnosis. I'd also say that sometimes parents that have TSC and didn't know it are diagnosed after their children are diagnosed. I mean, that they, makes sense, you know, given the fact that, you know, what you're describing is the technology has advanced so much, they may not have had the tools, you know, depending on where they live or where they grew up or, you know, the, the medical availability, um, you know, and the research available to their doctors at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. parents may have had a more mild manifestation of the disease. So maybe they only had the skin tumors or they had one seizure growing up and physicians then just didn't put it together. Right. Kari, I want to stick with you for a second. It sounds like there's a there's a range um, from very mild from what you're describing to, you know, individuals who are more severely impacted. Can you share with us a little bit about that range and what those what that could look like for individuals? 
Absolutely. So this is a variable disease. It used to be that we defined mild to severe based on the cognitive impact of TSC. Um, but the reality is now that individuals are living longer because the healthcare has improved so much. Um, somebody who might have, have a mild cognitive case can end up in renal failure, which I don't think is mild disease at all. Um, so it's, it's variable and you know really all the organ systems are involved. So that's why we say mild to severe and it's variable. That makes sense. That makes sense. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that individuals with TSC are going to face over the course of their lifetime? I can. So Steve mentioned infantile spasms early on and really the importance of recognizing an infantile spasm advocating for your newborn and getting appropriate care. So infantile spasms are really a catastrophic type of seizure. They happen in clusters, sometimes dozens of times a day. There have been cases where babies have had literally hundreds of seizures. And as Steve mentioned, these seizures really can lead to intellectual disabilities and a greater preponderance of those to go on to develop autism as well to the point of, of this podcast. Um, so really, that's the first thing we really help our families try to, to get control of um, in terms of, of those challenges. Um, as individuals grow older and sometimes, well, Almost all individuals with TSC have some sort of TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders. We call it TAND, and it is an umbrella term for the ways that TSC impacts the brain. So that can be everything from learning difficulties, executive functioning, neuropsychiatric disorders, anxiety, depression, sleep disturbances, autism. So we, we use this as a, an umbrella term so that now we can begin to define how each individual is actually impacted by TANS. This is very new. It's, it's such a broad spectrum uh, of individuals and a broad spectrum of conditions, but we really are starting to understand through patient reported outcomes how TAND impacts our community, begin to get some data so that we can begin to address the various aspects really with research to begin to address these clinically through um, better treatments or better behavioral therapy. You Steve, would you research. add to that? Those are just a couple of the things that I would, would add. No, I, I think that's a great overview. Yeah. Carl, you mentioned research and I want to get to that in a few minutes. Um, but first, it sounds like a really important, you know, a really important tool for families is great communication with their doctor, their pediatrician, the specialist. Who are some of those medical professionals they should be communicating with if they're starting to see some of these, you know, early indicators? Absolutely. So first of all, you're going to go to your pediatrician or your family practitioner, right? That's where you would naturally go. You need to get a referral to a neurologist. And there are 65 TSC clinics recognized in the U.S., of which 13 are centers of excellence. The reason why going to TSC clinic or center of excellence is so important is that really an individual with TSC needs multidisciplinary care. And our TSC clinics have neurologists and pulmonologists and cardiologists and 
um, all the ologists, <laughs> nephrologists, really um, to be able to look at the whole person, not just a, a, a piece. So it's really important that you advocate to get to the right TSC clinics so that you're getting that comprehensive type of care. Our TSC clinics also follow our clinical consensus guidelines. So one of the things the TSC Alliance has done throughout our 47 year history is actually to bring together clinicians to draft the, the gold standards, the world's gold standards for diagnosis, surveillance and treatment in TSC. And our TSC clinics follow those consensus guidelines. And that's why individuals are doing better today because we understand TSC better. We have these consensus guidelines for surveillance and treatment and, and also hopefully diagnosing a little early. Now, if your clinician doesn't necessarily, you say your family practitioner or pediatrician may not take you seriously and you think your baby's having infantile spasms and you're not getting the care that you need, we advocate for people to go to the emergency room and really ask for an EEG and, and advocate for your child so they have the best start possible. I think that's definitely something that our audience is great at is they're advocating for themselves and for their families. I think they've had to learn that along the way. So. I love that you're echoing that sentiment. I think it's important for everyone who's listening. You mentioned some of the treatment and management. It, would treatment and management be a lifelong uh, process? Is this something that you treat initially and then symptoms can, you know, improve over time? What, what does that look like? It's definitely a lifelong process and it does change over time. Steve often, and I'll let him jump in running our science and medical department, but, you know, there are timed things about TSC. So we mentioned infantile spasms, which tends to happen in early childhood um, as individuals grow. So they're Pre-adolescent and adolescent, you might see the appearance of skin skin tumors on the face called angiofibromas. When women uh, get to be childbearing age, lymphangiomyomatosis, big word, lamb, it is the lung involvement uh, in TSC, begins to present in primarily women, like 99% in women. Um, and then also um, kind of that young adult, although it can happen some in childhood, the appearance of tumors in the kidneys. So when you look at kind of the lifespan, there are things that, that emerge. Um, two thirds of individuals with TSC, however, will have medical refractory epilepsy, and that can continue into adulthood. Steve, is there anything you would add? So, yeah, I, I would say, um, yeah, for the foreseeable future, we we envision this as a, a lifelong disease that needs monitoring. Um, what we are shooting for um, is to get ahead of the disease and to be able to prevent some of these things, to get a diagnosis early enough before the epilepsy sets in or before it comes becomes refractory to prevent the refractory epilepsy, which should prevent the developmental delay, which should improve outcomes in terms of autism, um, 
you know, social and verbal capacity, capabilities, et cetera. And to get ahead of, um, you know, we know that, as Curry said, uh, adolescent women, uh, post-adolescent women with TSC are at risk of LAM in the lungs. Well, can we can we prevent that? Can we get ahead of it? Um, so there will be a lifelong, from, from what we know now, there will be that lifelong therapy. But by getting ahead of it, instead of playing catch up later, um, we hope to make this a, a chronic disease that um, people live with and hopefully kind of forget it from a day-to-day basis, right. except when they have to take their, you know, take their medicine in the morning um, so that it becomes something that they live with um, and not something that their lives have to revolve around. And right. we have certainly seen, as as Richie, I'm sure you've seen in the autism community, people are so willing to participate in clinical trials, really to give to the next generation. And we've seen such advances already. We want to bring the message of hope. Hope, no matter how complex this disease may be, our goal is to change the course of TSE for all the generations to come and also for those living with it today. That's great. That's great. I appreciate that. And yeah, I think, you know, so many families have been paying more and more attention to early diagnosis, right, of, of everything, right? You know, whether it's the flu or autism, if you catch it earlier, um, you're going to be able to treat symptoms better. And I'm not I'm not equating the flu to autism. Please don't uh, misunderstand mm-hmm. that. I'm just saying that if the earlier you recognize symptoms and you can start at treating them, the better outcomes are going to be. Um, right. So you've mentioned, you've both mentioned research a little bit. I want to dive into that. You know, uh, either one of you, tell us a little bit about what the TSC Alliance is working on in terms of some of their research and and, and in terms of what's happening. Steve, we'll share sure. with you. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to take that. So um, let me let me go back several years. So the, the TSC Alliance is um, 47 years old, and uh, we awarded our first research grant uh, 37 years ago when we were 10 years old. And so since then, the organization has been investing funds in research, but we've, as we've grown um, and gotten um, increasingly sophisticated and learned more about the disease, uh, we have increased the number and the breadth of the research programs that we have. So um, in terms of funding research, we still do that. We have a research grant program. We fund academic researchers. And the the purposes there are really twofold. It's to bring new research blood into the TSC community. So we focus our funding on early stage investigators. Uh, And it's also, of course, to generate new ideas, um, new ideas of either ways to understand the disease and then eventually, hopefully, to treat the disease. Um, But when discoveries are made in basic research, there's a need for translating those forward into the clinic. And generally, there's a need to demonstrate efficacy in animal models before researchers and the FDA really have the confidence to put a new treatment into people. And so we've developed a preclinical research consortium that is a a collaborative between academics and industry partners with the TSC Alliance at the center of this consortium. And uh, since 2016, we've tested um, at least 46 different compounds. Um, We have animal models of epilepsy and animal models of tumor growth in TSC that are um, very translatable to the clinic so that we have high confidence that what what works in these animal models can work in people with TSC. 
Um, we've also developed over the years uh, through a partnership with some of our leading centers of excellence that Kari talked about, a clinical research consortium. Uh, the clinical research consortium has executed um, at least five studies since 2012 that are NIH funded. Um, $35 million worth of NIH, NIH funding was obtained through grant applications. Uh, and these have looked at um, both early onset of epilepsy and looking at EEG early before babies start having seizures to see if we can identify those babies at risk of developing seizures imminently so that we can get ahead of it and prevent the seizures. That led to another study that they're currently running called the PREVENT trial, which is using bigabitrin to treat before the onset of seizures, but after the EEG starts changing in babies. So we're not treating every baby born with TSC, but we're following every baby born with TSC in this research cohort, right? right. Um, and then treating those where the EEG starts to change, which is indicative of potential um, seizure activity in the, next, in the next about six weeks. So we want to get ahead of that. Right. Um, they've also run studies for autism. So there's an autism biomarker study uh, that enrolled uh, 160 infants with TSC before the age of 10 months and has followed them up through three years of age. And so they're putting the final touches on data analysis. There are some preliminary publications that have come out from that. It's called the TASERN study. Um, that's for TSC Autism Center of Excellence uh, Research yeah. Network, TASER. And, um, uh, and there will be continue, there will continue to be uh, data and analyses and publications to come. So uh, it's been a, the, the clinical research consortium has been very, um, you know, very productive, uh, especially at helping identify risk factors to help us inform the development of clinical trials, both by academic and by industry partners. And then if I could um, talk about the two other resources that we've built that are really valuable at both the clinical side and the very early research side, and that's our natural history database and a biosample repository. So in 2006, the TSC Alliance launched a natural history database for TSC. Um, we talked about it being a rare disease. I didn't really define that. Uh, we estimate it affects about 50,000 people in the United States. Our natural history database has just enrolled over 2,300 people. So we have a fairly, wow. uh, you know, decent sized chunk of, um, you know, of the population. It's children and adults who are living with TSC and it collects medical data from medical records so that we're documenting the, the clinical um, natural history of TSC. Over, over the lifespan uh, of people. And then in uh, about 2015, we started collecting biosamples in our biosample repository. And so these are blood, or if people um, can't or, or are unwilling to donate blood, they might donate cheek swabs so that we can uh, isolate DNA from the cheek swabs. And we also have a number of um, tissues that have been donated to the repository. We now have over 1,700 samples collected. Um, and these are linked to um, medical records. So we have clinical data also in the natural history database. So this is something then that we share with researchers, again, academic and industry researchers, so that they can ask questions. Hey, what's, um, you know, I think about biomarkers in the blood as being very um, useful, not only for 
predicting uh, potential manifestations of TSC, but also um, helping identify biomarkers for clinical trials, right? That, that might help us um, help make clinical trials run more smoothly. Um, so when I think about the biosamples and biomarkers, I think of researchers, and, and some are doing this, taking blood samples from people who have these manifestations of TSC and people with TS, blood samples from people who have TSC but didn't have that and asking questions, um, why, are there why are they different? Can we find a reason? Is there a genetic reason? Is there a marker in the blood that suggests they'd be different? And that will help us provide that individualized care to people with TSC if we can anticipate oh, this person's more likely to develop lamb than this person. Well, let's be more aggressive with the prevention over here. This person's more likely to develop renal failure than this person. Well, let's be more aggressive over here. So um, I think this is a resource that will be valuable for, for years and decades, actually, um, for, uh, yeah, for, for researchers to enable research in TSC to make a difference. And just to have a statement about the impact of everything that Steve just talked about, you know, we did the biomarker study for epilepsy. We're in the midst of the PREVENT trial, which by the way, is the first preventative clinical trial for epilepsy in the United States. So that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And we hope that it will be a model for other rare epilepsies in the future. But if that proves positive, and simultaneously, we're working on an assay for newborn screening, then we can get every baby tested at birth by that little blood spot that they take in the hospital, right. know who's impacted, have a preventative treatment and truly alter the course of this disease. That's our goal. And we can see it on the horizon, which is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like what's happening right now is there are all, you know, all these individuals with this diagnosis and it's pulling all that data. And then, you know, to your point, Steve, figuring out what are the indicators of what's going to be next and trying to figure out what the data says now and, and, you know, predict the future. It'd be great if we could do that with the lottery numbers, but until then we can, you know, <laughs> we can do this, right? Which is, I think, fantastic because for a lot of individuals, it would be the same as winning the lottery. If I knew that I could, I, you know, to your point, if I knew I was going to develop, you know, issues in my lungs, I could prevent that. I could, I could spend more time with the pulmonologists and other specialists to help prevent that, right? That's such, that's mm -hmm. such a key piece of treatment and, and, living with the disability and living with the diagnosis as opposed to being impacted by it. Right. Right. I just have this image in my head. I just want to share this with everybody. It's like this big data warehouse with all these, you know, files in there, you know, similar to like what I think Bugs Bunny used to pull when he pulled open the, the file folders and they just went on forever and ever. That's sort of <laughs> the vision I have in my head. And, and, but that's a very positive thing. Right. I mean, that didn't exist, yeah. you know, to your point, Steve, that didn't exist 30 years ago or or even 20 years ago. Right. Right. So you mentioned a little bit about how um, there are some studies with autism, uh, you know, in, in studies focused around the individuals with autism. How, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on those studies? I have a few questions about that, but can you tell us a little bit more about those studies first before I dive into my next questions? Sure, I can. Um, so first, let me talk about TSC and autism. 
So it turns out that um, that people with TSC who have autism um, and a common tool that your your listeners are probably aware of is ADOS. It's um, a, a diagnostic tool for autism as a number of questions and, and many aspects of um, around the, the disease. And it turns out that um, the the scores that people with TSC get on the various parts of the of the ADOS are actually nearly identical to the scores to the pattern of scores of autism in the general population. So, in other words, um, and the reason that study was done, uh, it was published by um, Shafali Jesty. Uh, and Charles Nelson a few years ago. One of the reasons the study was done was um, because people wondered, well, is autism in TSC kind of representative or is it something unique? Is it different in some way, right? And so it turns out that it's actually not apparently very different, which gives us real hope that studying autism in TSC will help us understand the development of autism in the broader population as well. So to the autism, one of the autism studies that, that, um, that I mentioned, the Tassern study. So this enrolled babies with TSC, and we know that the risk of autism is, you know, up to 50%, right? That should, should fall on the autism spectrum. Um, many of those by age three, and some might not be diagnosed until later. Uh, and, and so the, um, the idea here is that that's such an enriched population. So if you think about autism in the general population, as prevalent as it is, it's much lower than, say, 50% right, of, a, of a study population, especially when there's, uh, you know, there's no way to know in the general population necessarily who's at risk, with the exception of some genetic you know, factors that have been identified, of course, having a sibling, already having a child, and we know the siblings at higher risk. So there are those types of things. But if you're talking about a family where there's no family history of autism, and this is the first child, you, you wouldn't be studying that child closely for the development of autism until it's perhaps later than it should be to have those interventions and make a difference, right? Well, in TSC, we could start because we know the risk is, is so high, we can start following them very early. So these, these babies had MRIs, they had EEGs, they had developmental tests. So things like um, some, some tests that, again, your listeners might, might know of, the Vineland, um, the Mullins uh, battery, and Bailey, um, some language and some development you know, type of tests. And they had them at, at regular and age-appropriate intervals and were followed up till age three where you know, the ADOS was done. And so what, what we'll be able to look at from that population and um, you know, takes a lot of time to actually analyze all those data in lots of different ways is, you know, can we, can we, so we'll, we'll know who at age three already fell on the autism spectrum and who didn't. So now let's look back at all of these things. We can look at the EEGs, we can look at the MRIs, we can look at the scores of these various test batteries, and we can look at combinations, right? I mean, with computer power, you can kind right. of look at different commutations and permutations. And how can we, can we identify something that very early on will identify those babies at highest risk? just like we're doing for the prevent trial with the EEG change, right? So what's changing in babies who are at high risk of developing autism? And then we can get ahead of it perhaps, right? So what if we can start some interventions? Is it, and, and you know, the intervention can be lots of different things. It could be, um, it could be, 
um, you know, interpersonal, right? It could be behavioral intervention, it could be communication. It could, maybe it's, um, maybe it's medication, right? Are there medications that we could give that during that formative time to prevent the development of autism? And then perhaps once the brain circuitry is kind of solidified, we would, I would hypothesize at least that you'd be able to come off those medications, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've, you've been able to, the brain has been able to develop in a more typical way um, and hopefully avoid most or all of the autism phenotypes. And then, you know, once the brain is set, I would think, I, th I would think we would be okay there. So um, really exciting times, I think. And again, just to, just to hit home the point, um, you know, we're focused on TSC, that's our mission, but we would really be over the moon excited to have what we learn help others uh, with autism as well. Really and I'll just say, yeah, sorry, Shafali Jesse is doing a really exciting early intervention study called the JET study, Jasper Early Intervention for TS. And she's really looking at can early behavioral intervention alter the course of autism or autism phenotypes in TSC specifically. That's fantastic. I mean, really what you're describing is it's it parallels so much to to what I think is going on within the autism community. But, uh, you know, it's so important to be able to say, let's look at what what we're seeing today. What are some of the patterns we saw lead up to this today? And again, what are some of those early indicators? Right. If we can give a diagnosis six months earlier, that's six months more of treatment mm -hmm. potentially and medication and, and, you know, hopefully six months of fewer seizures or, you know, which would have a lifelong impact, especially for our little ones, right? The two and three-year-olds that are very impacted by those. That's right. right. Kari, I want to kick it to you for a second. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the research and we've talked a little bit about the parallels of TSC and, and autism and certainly the overlap. I want to talk about the TSC Alliance and hear more about how they're helping individuals, you know, locally and internationally with, with TSC. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the resources that are available? I can. Let me just tell you that our mission statement is that we're dedicated to finding a cure for TSC while improving the lives of those affected. And we do that by providing support, information, and resources to anybody that's impacted by the disease by heightening awareness of TSC in the general public and certainly among the professional community and then funding and driving research that you just heard Steve talk about. In terms of the resources that we provide to the community, we have two support navigators. So you're diagnosed or you're experiencing a new symptom or TAND becomes um, really out of control for an individual and a family is, is searching for answers, they can call our support navigators right away and they can direct them to the appropriate resources. Second thing is we have 36 volunteer branches of our organization that cover all 50 of our United States. Those are all volunteer driven. They are led by people that have walked in our community's shoes. Um, they often have children or siblings or grandchildren with TSC and really are there to provide peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, there are two peer-to-peer -peer programs that I really want to uh, highlight and one is our education parent mentors. So as 
children with TSC are entering the school system and they may need special supports. These are specially trained individuals that can provide guidance to those families, even attend school meetings with them to advocate for the best results in their IEP or 504s. We also have a full-time person on staff. Her name is Shelly Meitzler. She has two children with TSC who on staff is also available to attend the school meetings, review IEPs, et cetera. And then we have a dependent adult transition resource coordinators um, in 33 locations across the US. And these individuals help parents whose children are transitioning from childhood into adulthood that are going to need special placement, special waivers. And as you know, every state is different, which is why we have volunteers across the country because they can really dive deep into what's going on in their own states and really provide the best information possible for their local community. So those are some of the resources that we have available. We also have a really, really vast website. There's so much information on there. Really, you can ask any question and probably find the information there. And we have a robust social um, social community. So on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, Inspire. And I think one of the places people go very early on in a diagnosis is to our social media channels, particularly our Facebook private discussion group, because they really want to reach out. And sometimes it's all times a day and, and have that voice come back at them that they understand where they're at and, and really feel supported. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we've, we've talked about that, that support so much on our podcast. I think it's so important. I don't know that I'll, we'll ever emphasize it enough, but making sure you have a support network, you know, regardless of the diagnosis process you're going through, whether it's for TSC or autism or epilepsy or, or all of it, potentially, it's so important to have that support network for the parents, for the families, for everybody. And what a great resource for people to be able to reach out and and find someone who's going through or has gone through the same process. There's just such a relief, I think, for people in that. Um, That's right. Great. Um, See, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I saw you nodding your head, but I couldn't tell if you wanted to expand on that or if you're just loving what we were, what Kari was sharing. You know, I'd like to add that our our community also has many very sophisticated um, members in terms of research. Um, especially clinical research. And so it it turns out that they're a great resource for spreading the word. So um, for example, the PREVENT trial where we're enrolling, you know, babies with a new diagnosis before they start having seizures, that's really important, right? That they not have seizures yet in that particular study. Um, And so when new parents um, get the diagnosis, they find the group on Facebook, they post, I just found out a bit about this, you know, what do I, what do I do? I need, I need information. I need to understand. I need help. Uh, it's very common for other, you know, we don't have to do it as staff, other, other, our community volunteers um, will comment and say, there's this trial called the prevent trial. Um, here's the information um, you should contact them and be a part of this or see if you want to be a part of this. And I think those people have through experience, because in many cases, they or their children have been a part of a clinical study or a clinical trial, realize that those clinical, um, those clinical studies are an opportunity for 
more intensive uh, medical follow-up, right? So whether or not the babies develop epilepsy or develop autism or whatever, they're getting seen on a regular basis by specialists in TSC. And so there is some value to that. And again, it helps them kind of be ahead uh, of the curve and be in the best position possible. And our community is just great at advocating uh, for that. We're also developing one more resource that I just want to share, and it's called TSC Navigator. And it's really to empower families through a proactive care management system that they can control how much information they seek. Um, and we're launching it on September the 1st. And really, it, it's to expand their knowledge when they're ready of um, where to go to get care. What are the right questions to ask? Um, what about genetic testing? What about medication and medication access? And how does that whole system work so that they don't have to come at it from a point of, I don't, I don't have my medication and I don't know what to do and what, what is a specialty pharmacy? It's all going to be there um, at their fingertips to access the information when they're ready and in their own time frame. Well, Kari, can you tell us where um, where can we find this information on the web? Where can we find the TSC Alliance, and where can we and, and where can we get connected with the private uh, Facebook chats and whatnot? Absolutely, our website is tscalliance.org, and on Facebook at TSC Alliance. Great, and we'll make sure those get added to the show notes uh, as well for anyone who's interested. Thank you both so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through TSC and really uh, sharing the, the parallels and, and, and all the information that you could. I, I appreciate that. It was Thanks, really Rachel. wonderful. Thank you. I really like about the work being done at the TSC Alliance is this big push for community education. They're really moving, uh, helping the community move from a wait and see approach to really an education leads to advocacy, leads to action approach. And I think that's just a more sophisticated thought process for all of us. It's something that we should all be thinking. And I like that we're evolving from a wait and see to a education and action stance. You know, the idea is that a diagnosis used to be a very scary and daunting thing, and I think really we should be thinking of a diagnosis as information. Uh, that information can lead to intentional action, which can, which can open up all sorts of possibilities. So I love that the TSC is really pushing for ongoing research, ongoing action, and ongoing community engagement so that everyone is informed to be able to make those intentional decisions. To learn more about the TSC Alliance, please find the links in our show notes. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, please send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.